Well, good morning. Hey, we're starting off strong. Glad that you're here. If you have not met me, my name, my name is Tanner Brack, and I'm the student pastor here. So I'm grateful for the opportunity to teach and lead us this morning. And I think that part of why I'm leading this morning is Mark is really strategic. And I think he looked at the calendar and he's like, this morning we're talking about Joseph, which is a third of Genesis. And it's spring break, and it's time change Sunday. And so he just was like, hey, here's a great Sunday for me to sleep in, get an extra rest, go on vacation of spring break, and let you teach. But, but I'm excited this morning, not only because as a student pastor, I've gotten really good at teaching with a lot of distractions. And so the good news for me is that I don't have to worry about you guys squirting ketchup on your shirts while I'm leading and talking about the Bible. That is a true story from this fall, but don't worry, I made sure that that student is on a trip this week, and so he won't be here this morning. Uh, but we're, I'm excited to, to lead us this morning. So Thomas mentioned that we're talking about Joseph this morning, and so there is 14 chapters that covers his life, and so we are not going to read all 14 chapters. We're going to center in on Genesis 45, but I'm going to try to highlight the high points of his life so that way we have some context before we jump into Genesis 45. But as we look at Joseph, like what we need to remember about Joseph when we think about him as a character in the story of Scripture is that he's known for two things that Joseph is a man who forgave greatly, and Joseph is a man who suffered really, really deeply. And so as we look at his life, we're going to pull three things out of his story. And the first one is that we can forgive, and that forgiveness marks followers of Jesus. And then the second one is that Joseph sees that God is control, but not only that, that it is a good thing that God is in, in control. And then the third thing that we'll be reminded in of and look at is that suffering does not mean that God is absent. And so that's where we're headed this morning. Um, and before we jump into Genesis uh, 45, I want to just kind of hit some of the highlights of, of Joseph's life. Because Joseph, he, we, he's, he enters into the story in Genesis 37 as a 17-year-old boy. And Joseph is his father's favorite son. Like Joseph is Jacob, who we've talked about the past couple weeks, his favorite son. He's the 11th out of 12. Now I'm a middle child, so I have no clue what it's like to be the favorite of your parents. Like, I mean, Joseph, he is given this expensive coat where in kids ministry, we often refer to it as the coat of many colors. And so I don't have a coat of many colors, but I have a shirt of many colors that is from a thrift store that cost me $3. And so so that's my experience as a middle child. But Joseph, he's the favorite of his father. And so his brothers, they already don't like him because he is the favorite of his father. And then God gives him a couple of dreams. And the dreams are only furthering his brother's hatred towards him because the dreams basically are telling Joseph, all of your family are going to bow down to you and you're going to rule over them. And so Joseph didn't have great self-awareness and told his brothers about these dreams, and so it only made them hate him more. And so what did they decide to do? We're going to beat him up. Nope, we're going to kill him. And so they throw him into an empty well for Joseph to die until one of his brothers finally is like, you know, maybe this isn't the best idea. And so let's sell him into slavery so at least we can get some money out of you. And so they sell Joseph into slavery, and he goes off to Egypt. They fake his death to his father, who thinks he's dead. And Joseph is, is now in Egypt, and he's serving as a slave under Potiphar. And he is prospering. He's doing well, so much so that Potiphar places him in charge of his entire household. 
And so much so that Potiphar's wife kind of catches the, the eyes for Joseph and begins trying to come on to him, wants to sleep with him, and is trying to seduce him. And Joseph, wanting to be faithful with God, says, no, I'm not going to sin against God, and I'm not going to sin against my, my master. So what does Potiphar's wife do? She flips the story on him, accuses Joseph of coming on to her. And so Joseph is thrown into prison as an innocent man among guilty prisoners and is in prison for a while until Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, has a couple of dreams and needs someone to interpret them. And someone Joseph has interacted with while he's in prison remembers, oh, Joseph interpreted some dreams for me while I was in prison. Maybe he can do the same for you. And Joseph interprets the dreams for Pharaoh that there are going to be seven years of plenty followed by seven years of extreme famine, and we need to plan ahead for this. And so Pharaoh places Joseph second in command, the second most powerful man in Egypt, preparing for this famine. And where we are in Genesis 45 is we're in the middle of this famine where Joseph's, where the whole world is beginning to starve. Even Joseph's brothers are starving. And so for his whole life, Joseph has been waiting for this moment where his brothers are going to bow before him, where he can get his payback, where he, he has access to his brothers again. And in Genesis 45, what we see is the moment of the dreams that Joseph has comes true, where his brothers are coming to him, bowing down to him, unknowingly that it's Joseph, looking for food so that way they don't starve. And so we'll read Genesis 45, 1 through 8. And so thanks for staying with me while I was trying to hit the... The high points. But Genesis 45, 1 through 8 says this. Then Joseph, because his brothers didn't know he was Joseph, they just thought he was an official in Egypt, could no longer control himself before all of his attendants. And he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him. And Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into, into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been famine in the land, and for the next five years, there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve you for this remnant on earth and to save your lives by great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And so, Joseph's whole life is leading to this moment, that he has been... Like the dream of God promised that he would, his brothers would bow down to him. And then he is sold into slavery. He spends, thir between slavery and him being in prison, he spends 13 years for things that he did not do. He, Joseph did nothing wrong. And then he finally has a moment to face his brothers who wrecked his life. Like Joseph's life does not look anything like he wanted it to look like. And Joseph finally gets his, his moment with his brothers. And what does he say? You guys are dead meat. No. Joseph says, I forgive you. And he goes further, like just other than just being kind to them, Joseph says, hey, don't be afraid. Don't be distressed. Like, don't be angry with yourselves. Like, he, he says, don't be distressed. Like, I'm forgiving you. It is okay rather than seeking payback or vengeance. Like, Joseph doesn't keep a grudge. 
but Joseph forgives the very brothers who wrecked his life. And so what we see is that forgiveness marks followers of Jesus. Obviously, Jesus hadn't come yet in the story of the Bible, but, but Joseph is following the way of God. That forgiveness is the way of God. And so Joseph is able to forgive his brothers. And so we, as followers of Jesus, for, should forgive, forgive those who f- sin against us. And so, but let's put ourselves in Joseph's shoes for a second. Like they are starving so much so that they travel all the way to Egypt to beg for food, to pay for food. They're talking to this Egyptian uh, official, just hoping to get some food. They have no clue that it's their brother. They just think he's the second most powerful man in Egypt. And then out of nowhere, he says, I'm your brother. Like that you sold into slavery. Like what an oh crap moment. Like, like I wouldn't have seen this coming. Like at best, they're like, he's going to send us away to starve at worst. Like we're dead in our shoes. But Joseph, Joseph doesn't do that. He responds differently than you and I would have. Joseph comforts them and extends forgiveness. And like, that is a refreshing response. Like it's not normal for people to forgive those who have wronged us. And so this morning, we're seeing that we don't have to get payback. But even though there's something within our sinful flesh to seek out payback, to seek out holding things against others, we don't have to do that. Even though we want justice and we want to take it into our own hands, we can forgive others and trust God in the midst of others hurting us and and being wrong against us. Like that's the way of the world, to seek vengeance, to seek payback, to, to get back at people. But the way of God is to forgive people. And so forgiveness marks followers of Jesus because it is the way of God to forgive sinners. Like God is a com- kind and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Like the whole gospel is of God forgiving us of all of our sins and all of our wrongs. And so, so it is the way of God to forgive. Even in Matthew 6, when the disciples ask Jesus, will you teach us how to pray? One of the things that Jesus teaches his disciples to pray is And God, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And so Jesus, even when he's teaching us how to pray, is emphasizing we should forgive those who have hurt us. And so to follow Jesus and to follow in his way is to forgive others. It's not revenge. It's not payback. It is to forgive others. And now, when I was thinking about this sermon and preparing for it, this is not the the point or the sermon that I wanted to teach because like, in the past year, and especially in the past month, like I've walked through some moments with my wife where some people have really hurt her and have done some things that I would say are, are wrong. And my flesh has been, I'm angry. I don't want to forgive them. I want to hold it against them. I want to find ways for these friends who have hurt her, who don't live in Arlington. You don't know, by the way. But um, <laughs> f- thought I might need to throw that out. But like, like, I just want to get back at them, and I want to show them how big of jerks they are. Like, I just want them to feel how, how, how bad of people they are. And so I'm sitting here as a guy who is struggling to figure out how to do this in my own life. Like, I know the truth that we should forgive, yet it is so hard for us to actually put that into practice in our life when life happens and people hurt us and they wrong us. And so how do we forgive even when it is hard? And so I want to define what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is the removal of relational debt. That someone has hurt you, somebody has done something wrong against you, they have sinned against you, probably intentionally. 
And forgiveness is seeing all of this stacked up before them and you looking at it and not counting, counting it against them. That it has been settled, there is no debt that they owe you. Forgiveness is a posture of heart to see someone without the blemish of what they've done against us. So I want to take a real quick second of saying that for, that is what forgiveness is. It's not counting something against someone. But forgiveness does not always equal reconciliation or, re, or restoration in relationships. That there are certain moments, maybe it, abuse or continual and habitual uh, actions that hurt us that don't, that should not involve reconciliation or restoration where we should put relational boundaries between us and offenders sometimes. But even though restoration and reconciliation may not always be possible or shouldn't be sought after, forgiveness should. Because restoration is in physical proximity. Forgiveness is in our hearts and in our minds in a posture towards someone. So forgiveness is the removal of relational debt. But how do we forgive? Like, how do I forgive these people who have hurt my wife really, really deeply? Well, it starts with this. That forgiveness is driven by an understanding that we all need forgiveness. So forgiveness is driven by us understanding that we need forgiveness. Everyone sitting in this room, sorry to break it to you, you are a sinner. You have sinned against God. You have hurt someone. You have wronged someone else. Like You are not perfect. All of us have fallen short. We've all wronged people and sinned against God. And so zero people in this room are sitting here having no need for forgiveness. But all of us have a need for forgiveness. Our fundamental need as humans is that we need God's forgiveness of our sins. Despite not being deserving of God's forgiveness through Jesus and his gospel, through his death and resurrection, forgiveness has been offered to us fully and completely. And so all of us need forgiveness because in that need and that understanding of our need for forgiveness is what fuels us to forgive others. Because if we are sitting here thinking, man, I have zero need for forgiveness, like I don't know like, like, no one, like, I haven't wronged anybody. Like, I'm not that bad of a person. You know, they can get over it. Like, if we don't see our need as a forgiveness, then there's no way that we'll forgive someone else. But when we look at the pile of debt before God that we have been forgiven of and that he has wiped clean, then that motivates us of like, man, I have been forgiven much. I can forgive others so much as well. And so to forgive, we have to see our own need for forgiveness. And then we need to receive the forgiveness offered in Jesus and use that as our fuel to forgive others. But forgiveness isn't just ignoring the offense. Like forgiveness isn't just putting her head in the sand and acting like nothing ever happened. Like to point at Joseph, like Joseph doesn't just ignore the fact that his brother's hurting. Like his first words are, I am your brother Joseph, and then he expresses what they did to him. The one that you sold into slavery. Like Joseph doesn't just hold it against them, but Joseph sees and points out what his brothers did. And then he chooses not to hold it against them. And so forgiveness isn't just ignoring the offense. And then forgiveness is a decision and a posture. The forgiveness isn't something that we wake up in the morning and we we're, we're going to be able to do immediately. It doesn't happen instantaneously. You can't throw it in the microwave and it be done in 30 seconds. Forgiveness takes time and it takes a decision and it takes a posture to do. Like I guarantee you there were many nights that Joseph was sitting in prison just wishing that his brothers hadn't 
hadn't wrecked his life, that he hadn't sold him into slavery, where he was sitting there wishing, like, I just wish that I could have my time with my brothers and get my payback. I'm sure Joseph had those moments. But Joseph, over time, had decided to forgive his brothers. Because if he waited until he felt like forgiving them, that day never would have come. So we have to decide to forgive someone because if we are waiting for a feeling of wanting to forgive somebody to come, it will never come. Forgiveness is a choice by looking at the offense and not holding it against someone. And so forgiveness lies in our hearts, not in other people's actions. So it won't be immediate, but if we continually make an active decision to forgive others, our hearts will follow. Like over time, Joseph learned to forgive to choose to forgive his brothers. So I know that maybe you might be familiar of Matthew 18 and how Jesus is asked, how many times should I forgive someone? And he says, not seven times, but 70 times seven. So I'm not good with math, but so on Thursday, I spent some time using my fingers to, to count up and it's a 490. And so the point of forgiveness is not to just do tally marks until you get to 490. But C.S. Lewis has a quote that totally shifted my perspective of of forgiveness, and I'm about to read it, but forgiveness isn't just a one-time action. So C.S. Lewis says this about how we forgive somebody. For we find that the work of forgiveness has to be done over and over again. We forgive. We mortify our resentment. A week later, some chain of thought carries us back to the original offense, and we discover the old resentment blazing away as if nothing had been done at all about it at all. We need to forgive our brother 70 times 7, not only for 490 offenses, but for one offense. So I remember reading this the first time and being like, man, that's why forgiveness is so hard, because we think that we can just forgive somebody one time for one offense, when in reality we have to forgive somebody over and over and over again for the same offense anytime we think about it or anytime we think of that person. And so what's hard is that that may mean that for the rest of our life, when we think about someone or we think about a specific moment in our life, that moment is marked by us having to choose to forgive somebody. For the rest of our lives, that may be our story of us having to choose to forgive somebody. But that's the call for forgiveness. The forgiveness is a decision and a posture we take to give someone grace because we have experienced the grace of Jesus. So when we've experienced the grace of Jesus, we want to give that forgiveness back. We are called to live differently than this world, to live differently than people who just seek out payback and seek out revenge. We are called as followers of Jesus to extend the same grace and forgiveness that we have been given by God because we know what it's like to receive the grace of God, and it's refreshing to the human soul when we experience forgiveness. And forgiveness of, when we forgive others, it points others to the forgiveness offered in Jesus. And so forgiveness is a mark of the follower of Jesus. And so Joseph is someone in scripture who displays an incredible act of forgiveness of his brothers. And Joseph is also someone whose whole life is wrecked and he walks through some intense suffering innocently that he did nothing wrong to be sold into slavery. He did nothing wrong to be thrown into prison. And he spent 13 years in slavery and in prison until he was released before his life began to have some freedom. And so Joseph displays someone who suffers well, who suffers um, faithfully. And so, so Next week, we're actually going to be walking through the entire book of Job, where Mark has the pleasure of doing that. And so that frees me up a little bit to not have to hit 
all of what suffering is and how, why we suffer and wrestle with those questions. But what we can look at in this story are what are two things that Joseph holds on to that we can hold on to when we are suffering? Because I don't know about you, but maybe you're sitting here and you can relate to Joseph's story because your life has been wrecked. It has been thrown, you've, you have your moment of being thrown into prison or being sold into slavery and you have walked through something hard. And so what can we hold on to? And the first thing is that Joseph sees that God is in control and that that's a good thing. And the emphasis is on that second part, that it's a good thing that God is in control. Because we may acknowledge that God is in control, but when suffering happens, it is hard to believe that it is a good thing that God is the one who's directing things. Because you and I, I don't know if you like suffering, I don't, but if you do, you have a problem and you might need to get, check, get it checked out. But we don't like suffering. And so it is a so when suffering comes, we think, God, what are you doing? Like, it's not, it can't be good that you're in control, but it is. And so we see in verse 5 and in verse 8, where Joseph uses the phrase talking to his brothers, God sent me ahead of you. Like, God sent me ahead of you to save lives, to save your lives for deliverance. God sent me ahead of you, and he's acknowledging that God's in control and he's able to partly he's able to forgive because he sees that it's a good thing that God is in control of his life, not him. So one of the hardest things about, about when trials or hard moments of our lives hit, when life isn't going the way we want, it's we're confronted with the reality that we're not in control. That we may have the illusion that we're in control of our lives, of choosing this job, of that job, of choosing when we have kids or we're choosing where we move or whatever. But whenever suffering hits, we're confronted with the fact that we are not in control. And it's a struggle because we feel like it's a better thing when we're, when we're in the driver's seat of our own lives. Maybe that's why backseat driving is such a hard thing for us to not do. Like I, It is better for me to drive in my marriage than for me to sit in the passenger seat because I make comments and I'm like, ah, why'd you? Blinker, break! Like, I make comments and then it just starts a not fun conversation with my wife. And so we like to be in the driver's seat. We don't like to be out of control, but it's a good thing that we are not in control. It is a good thing that God is in control because you and I have limitations. I don't think anybody in this room knows everything. We may think we're a know-it-all, but we do not have all of the knowledge in the world. We don't know everything. We can't see all of everything that's happened in the past, everything that's happening currently in the present, or in the future, but God can. God is omniscient. He knows all things. God is all-powerful. He knows he is, nothing is stronger than him. There's no limitation strength-wise that God can have. He can part seas. He can tell wind where to blow. He can tell the oceans where to stop. He can tell the sun when to, when to rise and when to set. Like God is all-powerful. God is the one directing and ruling all things. You and I are not. God does not have to sleep, and yet we do. Like, how many mornings do we wake up in the morning just looking forward to a nap or going back to bed? God does not rest. He does not have to rest. We have limitations, but God does not. And it is a good thing that God is in, in, is in control because even when bad things happen, God cannot sin. God cannot sin against you and I, yet we can. We sin against others. So it is a good thing that God is in control because God can't sin against us. But God even intended and used Jesus' death, the worst thing probably that he could have experienced, death, for the best thing of the whole world, 
the redemption and forgiveness of our sins. So if God can use the hard things in, in, even in Jesus' life, then God can use the hard things in our lives. And so it is a good thing that God is in control because it helps us. And knowing that God is good, that, it's got, that God is in control, helps us trust him when suffering happens. So Joseph sees that God was in control of everything. And so it allowed him to trust God with why he endured the trials. Joseph saw that God was using his suffering, using him being sold into slavery, sent to Egypt, thrown into prison to be in proximity of somebody who could tell Pharaoh who might be able to interpret the dreams so that Joseph could then go and interpret the dreams to Pharaoh and be in a position to save the entire world by providing food through the wisdom that God gave him to direct them in saving food. And so Joseph saw that God sent him ahead to provide food during a famine where the world would have otherwise died because the whole world was coming to Egypt for food because otherwise they would have starved. So I'm sure that you're sitting in your seat doing the math of like, okay, like what is my being sold into slavery moment? What is my being thrown into prison moment? And how do I reconcile that? Like why would God allow this cancer diagnosis or this this health issue? Why would God allow this relationship to crumble or this person to leave me and abandon me? Why would God allow um, my career to fall flat and to not look the way I want it to? Why would God allow this to happen? And we are looking to answer the why question because we want to find comfort because it feels like if we just know why, then we'd have some stable footing that would help us get through. But it but knowing that God is good and that God is the one in control is going to bring us so much more comfort than knowing why. So this morning, Joseph, we can acknowledge that Joseph saw the clarity of why he suffered. And sadly, I can't promise that same clarity for us. I can't promise that we'll figure out why we suffered or why you're walking through whatever moment you're walking through. But I don't want us to mention or I don't want us to miss that Joseph didn't always know why. When Joseph got sent into, was sold into slavery, when Joseph was in, his, was in prison, Joseph didn't know why. For those 13 years that he is sitting in those scenarios, Joseph didn't have clarity of why he suffered those things. But during those moments, God did not use his, like his suffering wasn't meaningless. God was using his suffering to form something within him. God was forming a steadfast faith in Joseph and a dependent love on God above whatever this world could offer him so that when God brought Joseph out of prison, Joseph was the man to be able to serve God in the way that he needed. That Joseph's, Joseph went through all of this and was building a trust in God that didn't come upon the clarity of his suffering, but it came in his understanding of God's character. So this morning, whatever you're walking through, the greatest thing that we can find comfort in is God's character, that he is controlling. It is good for him this morning. And so God used the trials to form into Joseph into a man who would forgive his brothers and save lives rather than sending them away to starve. So whatever you're going through, maybe we should just ask the question, okay, God, like, how do I be more dependent on you? How do I find you as my comfort rather than why I might be going this? God, like, what are you trying to form within me? And will you give me more faith in your character? Because God, I know that it is a good thing that you're in control. 
and I can trust you with my life. And so Joseph saw that it was a good thing that God was in control. And then the last thing that we'll see or that we can pull from Joseph's life is that the suffering doesn't mean that God is absent. Like how many times do we think that when something hard hits and when something happens, we think that God has just abandoned us and left us. Like we often equate suffering with God being absent, but that is not true. Like that is a lie from Satan for us to believe that God has abandoned us to suffer alone, that God has abandoned us to suffer meaningless things, but that is not true. Like suffering does not mean that God is absent. For Joseph, in the story in Genesis 37, immediately after he's sold into slavery, the scripture says, and the Lord was with Joseph. And then immediately after Joseph is thrown into prison, it says, and the Lord was with Joseph. That at the height of the moments of Joseph's suffering, the, Lord, the scripture reminds us that the Lord was with Joseph. Psalm 34, 18 says this, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those crushed in spirit. That God is close to those who are hurting. That when we are crying, when we are in pain, God draws near to us. Suffering does not mean that God is absent. God is with us. He is with us every day and he is using our pain to refine our faith. The greatest promise of scripture is that God is with his people. Over and over and over in scripture, we are reminded, fear not for I am with you. Behold, I will be with you until the end of the age. Like Jesus says, right before he leaves his disciples and goes to heaven, like he sends his spirit to be with his people, even though we cannot see God in a tangible person, like the disciples saw Jesus physically, we have the spirit of God dwelling inside of believers with us everywhere we go. That in the Psalms, it says that there's nowhere on earth that we can go and escape God's presence. And that is a good thing. God is with us. Over and over and over, we are promised that God will be with us. Never will he leave us, nor will he forsake us. Like at Christmas time, we celebrate Jesus' coming of earth. Like God went to, came to earth, put on flesh to be with his people. We, talk, we call him Emmanuel, God with us. God did not stay distant, but he came to be with his people. He died on the cross to create access to be, for us to be with him forever. So if God is going to, great length, going to these great lengths to be with us just because suffering and trials hit, it does not mean that God is absent and that God has left us. We can hold on to the promise that God is with us in the midst of our suffering. Like that is the hope of our gospel that we will be with God through Jesus' death, death and burial and resurrection because of his forgiveness, because he forgave us of our sins. Like the hope of the gospel is that we will be with God. And it's the hope in our suffering that God is still with us. So suffering does not mean that God is absent. God is with you. So where do we go this morning? Like, we, yes, Tanner, like you are encouraging us to forgive others. You're talking about how like that is a mark of a Christian. You're talking about how it is a good thing that God is in control and you're, talk, you're reminding us that God is with us in the midst of our suffering. And so where do we go this morning? Because these things aren't just things that we're gonna walk out of the room and feel really great about holding on to. Like I don't think anybody's gonna skip out of the building like I'm gonna go call that person and forgive them or I'm gonna be happy about forgiving somebody. I don't think that you're gonna this afternoon during lunch, be like, you know what? I'm happy I'm suffering. Like, that's not going to be our natural response. So where do we go this morning? Well, I hope that it just pushes us into a deeper dependence of 
into God. That we can't forgive, we can't trust God's character, we can't hold on to the comfort of his presence if we aren't dependent on God. And so this morning, maybe what we do is we just say a simple prayer. God, I need you. God, I, I don't know how to let go of this hurting in my heart. I don't know how to forgive someone, and so I need your help. Maybe it's, Father, like, I, I don't trust you with what, what you're doing in my life, but I want to or I at least want to take a step towards it. So this morning, maybe it's just we take one step of learning how to trust God with our lives. That's where, that's where we go this morning. Is it, this isn't a pep talk of, hey, go be better or go be happy about these things, but it is a, a reminder and encouragement that God is a rock and a foundation, a cornerstone that we can build our lives on. So that's our hope this morning, that we can remind ourselves that through Jesus, we have life, that we've been brought from death to life, and that he's with us in our lives, empowering us to display the gospel to others through forgiveness, and that his suffering was for our good, and that our suffering can be for our good as well.